Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by writer and political analyst, Aria Kovler. Aria is the founder of The Hat Tip, a digital newsletter which provides reports, analysis, and productions about current affairs, especially in the US, the UK, and Israel. He's joining us today from Jerusalem. Aria, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So today I wanna talk about how you observe the United States from your perch in Israel as well as how you see the political landscape here in the U.S. unfolding over the next year and beyond. But first, I want to talk about January 6th, 2021, a year ago. So reflecting back on that day, you put out a tweet that's gone viral, and as we talked about when we were together last week, that you predicted what would happen with pretty scary accuracy. Here's what you tweeted, quote, On January 6th, armed Trumpist militias will be rallying in D.C. at Trump's orders. It's highly likely that they'll try to storm the Capitol after it certifies Joe Biden's win. I don't think this has sunk in yet. I got to be honest with you, Aria, I still don't think it's sunk in even a year later. So walk through for the listeners a little bit how you came to this conclusion, one, and then two, after it actually happened, I don't think you probably took any sort of pride in being right, right? We are often right for bad things happening. But what was your sense of it going in and why you thought this was a possibility? I mean, you really have to zoom back five years to 2015, 2016, the beginning of the Republican presidential nomination. And you see the strange phenomenon in parts of the internet, in the chans in particular, you know, these kind of more underground sites and then bleeding through into Reddit as well, that had latched onto Donald Trump semi-ironically. I think some of it was sort of anti-Hillary stuff and it seemed like, you know, Donald Trump was the anti-Hillary. Some of these are people who maybe conflicted between what's the most out there candidate I could choose. And some of them were just kind of role playing. They thought it was funny. You know, people on the real hard far right white supremacist space who they don't really like Donald Trump. He doesn't fit their ideal of the Superman. And they don't really like government at all, right? Yeah, <laughs> sure. They don't like government. You know, maybe they'd like the right kind of government. They like government for other people. But they kind of begun to role play essentially that, you know, Trump is our great savior. He's the smartest. He's the most intelligent. He's the greatest persuader. Yeah, he might look like this bumbling buffoon who would struggle to tie his own shoelaces. But, you know, really, there's some kind of clever plan going on there. And people around them believed it. There were sort of two different movements. There was the movement that Trump himself was building out there in the grassroots. He's trying to 2015 rallies that were very strange and different and were attracting a different kind of person. And then there was this sort of, I guess you'd have to call it online elite part of the movement, the kind of MAGA hardcore, who were role-playing. It was funny for them until they built up around them a cadre of like strange true believers who bought all this stuff. And then when the guy wins, he wins the Republican nomination and then he wins the election, it seems like, okay, see, we told you he's the cleverest, smartest, 5D chess-playing genius all along. Right. And handed down by God. Exactly. And so you saw this 
kind of group of people who just thought that the guy could not lose. It was impossible. And he said to himself, he can't lose. Over and over again, if I lose the midterms, it'll be fixed. And he lost the midterms, but he just said, oh, okay, I didn't really lose the midterms, you know, and was able to successfully convince his supporters of a narrative whereby he won the midterms, actually, okay, he didn't really win the house, but what well, doesn't matter, actually. What really matters is anything he did win. So they'd never tasted defeat, these people. They never thought it was a possibility. They never accepted it for a second. And every single time that you, and you might have had this experience yourself, every single time you interacted with someone who wanted Trump to lose, they were nervous as hell going into the election of 2020. We do not have this. It looks like we're 17 points ahead. We do not have this. Anything can happen. We are scared. We're going to try our hardest. You talk to the most hardcore Trump supporters, they thought it was hilarious when they were 17 points behind. They're like, ha, you guys' heads are going to explode when we win. It's going to be that much sweeter when you realize how deluded you've been. When you realize when we win 40 states, when California turns red, you are going to shit yourselves. Well, and let me just say, you know, on election night 2020, I can tell you this. I mean, we knew that Trump was going to win Florida. We even knew that Trump was going to win a state like North Carolina. And we even knew intellectually, Aria, we knew that the early numbers were going to be better for Trump because there were so many outstanding vote by mail ballots. But that did not mean I wasn't pacing back and forth at our headquarters that night, convinced it was going to happen again and beside myself. I mean, there was that 20 minutes when the Ohio numbers came in, where suddenly everything looked really up in the air. Then, you know, early numbers started coming out of Pennsylvania and Georgia. The Georgia numbers started to look a bit better and things moved the other direction. But I remember that kind of 20 minutes, half an hour when Ohio came in, where, where it really looked like, oh, this is happening again. An experience which, you know, I mean, I was against Brexit and I kind of have been through a lot of it here in Israel, where we had a lot of elections in the last few years. And the experience of sitting up on election night, watching the votes coming in and that sick feeling of knowing that you either might lose or you are losing. Like, it's a special feeling that these guys had never felt. And they didn't even feel it on 2020 because even as those results were coming in, they were saying, this is, ah, it doesn't mean anything. It's all fake. It's all lies. You'll see Trump has a plan. In the morning, we'll wake up and he'll have won. In the weekend, we'll wake up and he'll have won. In a couple of weeks, we'll wake up and the courts will have thrown out the votes and he'll have won. Oh, and Trump himself is saying, you know, just watch. I'm about to win. I'm about to win. They never accepted it. And the last possible date that you could maintain this fantasy was January the 6th, unless you were really, really messed up. And there were some people who were really messed up and still think Trump's the president. But leave them aside. You know, the majority of that hardcore base was going to have to come face to face with reality on January 6th. So when Trump himself posted a call saying, come to D.C. for January the 6th for the electoral vote count, it's going to be wild. They all saw it as their marching orders. They're like, okay, until now, we haven't been asked to do anything. Now we're being told what to do. This is our mission. This is going to be the thing. This is the day that Trump's going to win. Well, I'll say this. He had even prepped them previously in October in the first debate against Biden when he said, stand back and stand by. So they were sort of primed already. Yeah. And look, you know, I'm one of those people who thinks that a lot of the things that this guy does are basically accidental. I don't think he had a grand plan when he said that. I think he just thought it sounded cool. But not to the people who heard it, though. Yeah, the people who heard it absolutely thought it was an activation order, a proper standby order. And they thought when they saw that tweet that this is what they were being made to stand by for. That's absolutely right. And then you saw immediately that same day, the 19th of December, you saw discussions on these Trumpist forums, particularly the forum The Donald, which used to be a subreddit that was kind of banned from Reddit and became its own independent website. People planning, they were writing to their bosses to take a week off work. Why a week? Why not a day or two? Because they didn't want to 
fly into DC. They want me to take their guns. So they're prepared to drive two, three days, four days if you need, you know, wanted to be there before because maybe it's all going to go down the night before. People arranging carpools. Serious discussions happening immediately within hours of Trump's tweet. Are we supposed to storm the Capitol? Are we supposed to be there to witness whatever it is that happens? Are we supposed to be there to fight Antifa? Because maybe Trump's going to win that night and then Antifa's going to rise up to try and stop the count because the count's going to declare him the winner and we need to defend Congress from the raging BLM and Antifa hordes. But whatever it was, they were coming to D.C. for a fight because why else would Trump have summoned them? And I think from that point, you could only see it moving in that one direction over and over again. And, and it just seemed to me patently obvious that come January the 6th, something was going to happen and it was going to be something violent and it was going to be mass because there were tens of thousands of people there. It wasn't going to be 50 guys with guns. It was going to be tens of thousands of people. So now that you were a year past that, you wrote a post around January 6th that said it could have been much worse. And I've been actually thinking about that post a lot. And I've been thinking about it in the context of Officer Eugene Goodman of the Capitol Police and how much history often stands on one person. Eugene Goodman has to be in the right place at the right time, willing to do the right thing and think on his feet, tell Mitt Romney to get the hell out of there and to lead that mob away from people knowing that it might cost him everything. But in that moment, he did what was necessary. And it might very well be that, but for Eugene Goodman, you and I aren't having this conversation today. Yeah, no, I think that that's absolutely right. You know, Eugene Goodman has an untied shoelace and he's 30 seconds later. We could be looking at a very different story where the mob that heads towards the Senate gets into the Senate chamber. The senators are still there. Maybe the Secret Service is there with Mike Pence and then they do what the Secret Service does. Maybe the Secret Service and Pence have already left, but there are a bunch of senators in there who become hostages. There are any number of ways that things could have gone much, much worse, if not for Officer Goodman's two or three incredibly fast moves, you know, directing Mitt Romney to run in the other direction, thinking how he could guide the mob up the stairs and just provoke them enough that they'll follow him, not enough that they'll try and beat him down and then run past him and then draw them up the stairs, you know, if it had been a different officer, if it had been a minute later, a minute earlier, who knows how it could have gone. And any number of other times, you know, it's, it's a huge complex. The rioters were everywhere. If any of them had recognized, say, Democratic members of Congress and just didn't know who they were, but if any of them had recognized one of their kind of bete noir Congress people, things could have gone terribly. And there's lots of other stuff. You know, there were bombs planted outside the RNC and DNC headquarters that didn't go off. And we're still not quite sure why. But they were viable devices, right? If one or the other of them had gone off, who knows how that story would have gone. That part remains very interesting to me because what it said was whoever planted those bombs was not a Republican partisan necessarily. They were just trying to, hopefully, if the things had gone off, they were trying to cause as much chaos to the system as they possibly could. Yeah, I mean, there were really next to no Republican partisans in the crowd that day because that wasn't where the discourse was right then. Right then? To support Donald Trump was to be against the Democrats and to be against the Republicans. And it was very clear, I would say. Remember that in the days immediately after January the 6th, for about a week and a half, two weeks, there was a serious conversation about whether Trump would go and set up his own fascist party as an alternative to the Republican Party because he felt that they failed him. The Patriot Party, it was called, there was, I had a logo and everything. That actually had been a fever dream of the kind of Trump MAGA base for years, really since 2017. There's a whole story to be written here about how the kind of MAGA base relates to and feels about the Republican Party. 
they came in in 2016, 17 with a lot of anger. They saw themselves as their own people, Trump people, and the Republicans and Democrats are all the enemy together. And that kind of really changed in the run up to the 2018 midterms. Suddenly, there was a kind of reconciliation and maybe an understanding by some Republicans that they wanted these guys to vote for them and they needed these guys to vote for them in the primaries. And a sense from some of the MAGA guys that like, you know, now we're all on the same side fighting uh, AOC and those people. And they kind of fed out of love again after the election. And there was this period of weeks where these people basically hated all Republicans almost as much, and in some cases more, than they hated all Democrats. I mean, going back to 2015, 2016, I mean, maybe even earlier than that, if you did focus groups with very conservative Republican voters, they always expressed much more disdain and anger and loathing for people like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell than even for Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid. Because Nancy and Pelosi and Harry Reid were supposed to be their opponents. They saw Ryan and McConnell as rhino shills for corporate America and rich people who didn't really have conservative values. They just cared about power, which admittedly is probably true. Actually, in McConnell's case, it's absolutely true. And, you know, you even go back to the Tea Party stuff, right, which of 2010, where if we had been smarter as Republicans at that point, we would have understood, oh, wait, we might still get Mitt Romney as a nominee in 2012. But let's be clear, the inmates are taking over the asylum and we should either try and do something about it or like we got to get clear before it really goes down. Yeah, there's just a lot of crazy that no, and look, ultimately, this is a problem that the Democrats have in a different way and not in a severe way too, not in a severe way. Like, how do they deal with their own base? How do parties deal with what their bases are becoming when their bases are no longer aligned with the party's values? And let me ask you that as an observer, just as an aside. I mean, you live in Israel. Israel has numerous parties because it's a parliamentary system like the UK, so that there are outlets for different viewpoints. But in the US, with a two-party system as it's developed, you're stuck with one side or the other. And as the Republican and Democratic parties have gotten more partisan, then the ability for those people to live together has become harder and harder because now you don't have really conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. Everybody's sort of lined up on the same side, but now they fight even more on their side of the aisle. You know, it's a structuralist binary, right? Once, you know, it's the us and them, then you want to make sure your us is as us as possible and your them is as them as possible. And anything that seeks to break down that binary is kind of threatening. You know, if you're not us, then I guess you must be them. But for American voters, though, that also leaves a situation in which you may not like either party, but you only have two choices. So you'll choose the party who you think will do you the least amount of harm or will leave you alone the most. Look, I mean, the, the story of 2016 is a lot of people rejecting that and saying, no, I don't, I don't have to vote for someone I don't want to vote for. And then it turns out that you actually kind of do. Because if you don't vote for the person who you don't like particularly, you end up with the person that keeps you awake at night scared. There are only two choices when it comes to election day in, in, you know, in the United States, and that's the reality. But yeah, the truth is, in other countries, it's not so different. Here in Israel, there's a bunch of parties, but there's still a kind of a big sense of like, the Israeli right likes to have its purity tests. Who is really right? And this one is not right. They might be actually politically to my right in all ideological values, but because they work with the hated left, they're not really right wing anymore. You know, they're out of the tent. Right, the tent is defined by not ideological purity, but like purity to the movement or to the leader. And then, you know, you kind of end up in a, a sort of weird post-policy environment, which I think is kind of a lot of where the US Republicans are right now. Where like, you just still have a lot of actual small C conservatives, you know, 
around, you know, particularly in the Senate. But then you have, you know, when Trump was president, then they'd support policies that no one would call conservative because that's what he said he wanted. So I think we have a current example of that here in the U.S. in the embodiment of Liz Cheney in the U.S. House, which is she is far more conservative, you know, in the small C conservative space, as you describe it, than most of the members of the Republican conference. But she has been tossed out for her willingness to defy the leader, to defy the big lie. And now she sits on a dais with the January 6th committee with many people who are far to her left, which would be just about everybody, who would otherwise loathe her for policy positions, but in this moment have said, you know what, she's on the right side of history. So let me ask you about that, Arya, because as we're looking forward here, in the last Israeli election, and I think you had four in two years, it was ultimately Netanyahu was not given enough mandates to be reelected prime minister by a very narrow margin, right? And a lot of people had to come together to make that happen. And then, you know, just I think it was a few weeks ago, a few months ago, a bunch of people had to hold together in a very odd coalition to ensure that a budget would get passed and there wouldn't be new elections, right? Which was what Netanyahu was trying to do. So I guess my question is, do you think that that kind of coalition in the United States can come together where it's like, look, this is not about Republicans versus Democrats. This is not about liberal versus conservative, because as you said, at least for Republicans, they live in a post-policy world and Democrats can't get out of it. Do you think that's possible here in the U.S.? I'm honestly not sure that it is. Look, it's happening in a few places, right? We're beginning to see this kind of Israel model discussed pretty widely as like, you know, Hungary. They're thinking about whether they can come up with something similar, Poland possibly, and a few other places where you know, the incumbent government has been making moves which are felt to be anti-democratic. I think it's the kind of movement you can only pull together in opposition. I don't think it's the kind of coalition you can build in power. I don't think that the politics work for that. And I guess, arguably, you could say that this coalition did exist in 2020 to some degree. I mean, this kind of here, I'm talking to the Lincoln Project, who are part of that coalition. But I don't know how much you can build and expand that coalition once you win. Look, the extent to which kind of the Biden coalition is held together so far is actually pretty impressive. Well, it is for the president. The issue which we saw in 2020 with this coalition, too, which I think was a grand coalition that came together in an ad hoc basis, was that it didn't have any legs down ballot. It didn't help in the House. It didn't help in the U.S. Senate. And so now we're still seeing that, right, which is, to your point, Democrats are in power, even if narrowly. But they are clearly, whether or not it's the U.S. House or the U.S. Senate or the other power centers in the Democratic Party, they are not necessarily united and they're not necessarily, I don't want to say they're misaligned or not aligned with the president, but they're certainly not all standing up, you know, in locking arms and marching forward together. I think it's really difficult because I think that a lot of the public, Republican voting public in 2020, who did feel that Trump, they were done with him one way or another, didn't accept or appreciate the extent to which the party had kind of gone Trump. And more than that, even if they didn't accept it then, it's obviously very different now. Things have headed so much more in that direction with Trump out of power than I think maybe I would have predicted. If you'd have asked me on, you know, the second week of uh, November 2020, do you think that the Republican Party in January 2022 is going to be more MAGA? I'd have said, well, no, that's ridiculous. I actually wrote about this a little bit. Like, you need to learn from defeat. You need to take stock from defeat and say, okay, what did we do wrong and how can we do it differently last time? And that's actually something that the Democrats did do well after 2016, after Hillary, is that they learned some of the lessons. The Republicans 
they weren't able to learn any lessons in 2018 because they insisted it was a victory. And they haven't been able to like think about what it means to lose 2020 because they don't think they lost. So as long as you don't think you lost, your only meaningful conclusion is, well, the way we don't lose next time is we make sure that the electoral system makes us win. And, you know, they don't go through that kind of process of creative destruction that comes with losing an election. I think the other part, too, that I've been thinking about is I would venture to say in almost every other situation, when a president left office or was defeated, one, they went away, or two, if they lost, their power within their party almost completely evaporated because people were on to the next thing. This didn't happen. Trump is more in power now than he was when he left office. And I think then you bring in the things like, you know, the Reddit and the 4chan and then the Fox News and all that, which is we now have a whole bunch of people who utilize and maintain tangible political power without holding elective office. Donald Trump sits in a bridal suite. Tucker Carlson sits in a made up studio in his house, but they are able to put major pressure if we saw like what Carlson did to Ted Cruz, right, or what Donald Trump did on the phone this morning, which was blast Republican senators who were saying he lost and blast Mitch McConnell. That will drive Republican Senate candidates who are not McConnell people further away from McConnell and further into the big lie MAGA land, which very well might have the you know, result and effect in November of like, these people are even too crazy for folks in Ohio or Wisconsin, right? Like even they're like, eh, you know, like I'm not really a huge fan of the Democrat, but dude, you're nuts. I think there's this other dynamic here, which is there's a kind of segment of Republicans who they kind of thought they could get away without going deep into 2020 denialism by instead just talking about vaccines and mandates all the time. The way they thought they could tick their box for the base was becoming like a kind of anti-vax, COVID conspiracy, you know, mandates of the devil people. That way, oh, you know, we'll get away with it because we're doing one piece of kind of base fan service here. And if we leave off the other one, fine. And Trump is clearly pissed off about this. He's like, no, I want you on my issue. And, you know, he's been taking these little swipes, which are not so subtle slights at DeSantis the last couple of days, but not saying if he got the vaccine booster, because, you know, he, he wants everyone to be talking about 2020 until the end of the time. Well, also, I mean, with DeSantis, he sees a real threat. But it's also this weird thing to your point about how, like, he just thought it sounded good. I think in some twisted way, Trump is talking about the vaccine and the boosters because he believes he should get credit for having invented them and he's not getting it. He believes his base will be there with him, even if he says you should get vaccinated and boosted, which he can then also lean back on and say, I've been telling people to do this. You know, I can't help it if they don't listen. I'm not completely sure that he's right on that, by the way. The one thing that I've seen people peel away from him over is his position on, on vaccinations even though his position on vaccinations is the most normal position in the world. But that's why he keeps up the 2020 MAGA stuff, right? That's why he keeps yeah. up the big lie stuff. He's not traditionally intelligent, but he's incredibly instinctual. Yes. But it's only an issue if enough people think it's weird. You know, I saw this troubling poll that was asking about, do you think the election was fixed or stolen? I don't remember the form of words. And what bothered me wasn't the number of Republicans. It was there was a significant chunk of independents, self-defining independents who were there. You know, independents in polls right in the run up to 2020 looked quite a lot like Democrats. Right now, they look quite a lot like Republicans in terms of their beliefs. Obviously, that's a challenge for 2022. Well, but I think this is also a situation and we've seen this trend with voter registration in states and across the country, which is more and more voters don't like their own party. 
So they decide to become not affiliated, independent, declined to state, whatever the term of art is in your given state. But that's still home, right? Like that's still where they'll likely end up. Not to say that there aren't true swing voters of 8, 10, 12% every time, because I think there are. Um, but then even in a place like, you know, let's say Western Pennsylvania, where a lot of, let's say, union members were always committed Democrats, they are now effective Republicans, but they just never bothered to switch their registration. So people are like, well, how could this have happened? Because the numbers don't work out right. So behavior is overtaking, you know, party registration. I think the other part, too, is I think that's why you see, too, him go after McConnell and the rhinos, because he knows, OK, they might be mad at me about the vaccines, but I know that they really, really hate Mitch McConnell and they don't believe he's on my side. He's not pure enough. I do think this didn't have to be this way. I do think there was a window after the election and also a second window after January the 6th where Republicans in Congress, state governors could have said, OK, enough is enough. We're done with this. I think that their unwillingness to accept that maybe Trump was gone is what led to him to not be gone. I feel like there was a period in the immediate aftermath where he didn't have this influence and it was kind of ceded to him by elected officials too scared to try and see what would happen if they went against him. And this gets back to what you call the post-policy, I'll also call the post-belief or post-ideological state in which the Republican Party finds itself, which is all any of them care about is power, either maintaining power, retaining power, attaining power, self-aggrandizement, self-enrichment. What was Mitch McConnell's calculus in December of 2020 about staying out of Trump? Well, A, what's the harm anyway? It's not really going to happen. But B, I don't want to mess up the stuff in Georgia. Well, Aria, I have this belief that if you try and avoid the worst possible outcome, you will find your way to it. And it seems to work out. Mitch McConnell said, if I leave Trump alone, if I let him go off and do his crazy things and I tell all my people, Roy Blunt, all of them, like, don't say anything about election certification. Don't say anything about that because we don't want to mess around in Georgia. What happened? Roger Stone and all the other kooks go down to Georgia and say they're not Trumpy enough. Trump is down there saying the vote was rigged. You can't trust the governor. You can't trust the secretary of state. And what happened? My guess is, is that the undervote for Purdue and what's her name came from Trump supporters saying, I don't trust any of them. And I don't care anyway, because you know what? I don't really care about Republicans because I don't trust them any more than I trust Democrats. I think that the right person could exploit that to depress Republican votes. There's some questions about the morality of that. And like, it'll be interesting to see to what extent a, you know, relentless Trump-driven focus in 2022 on how elections are rigged impacts the 2022 vote. I'm not sure will that much because I don't know how much of it will cut through because without his social media, he's sort of shouting into the void and, you know, he's not really setting the agenda on a day-to-day -day basis for what's being talked about in the public body. That's down to Tucker Carlson's, the Fox News, even Joe Rogan's of this world. Right. Which I would say this is that they don't just do it for the Republican, right? I would venture to say because they are so cohesive, because they are so loud and because they are so relentless, a lot of times they end up driving the narrative and mainstream media and the left are either get in line behind it or just sort of stand on the side sort of agape. They don't really know what to do about it. Yeah. Although I would really question the use of mainstream media here because I feel like those guys are extremely mainstream media and like they're Swadison outsider status is a bit bullshit and we should call them on it. Like, 
you know, these are massive shows. Maybe some of the biggest shows in America. Joe Rogan's not on the, the television, but his podcast is one of the largest to listen to, might be the largest to listen to or media in, in the US. He has like 150 million downloads or something last year, something crazy. Exactly. And, and like, there's something very populist in general with being in power, with being the mainstream and pretending that you are the outsider, nevertheless, fighting the system. I'm just a little guy fighting the big guys. But no, you're not. And Fox, you know, for the last several years, Fox is most of the time, or lost a little bit towards the end of 2020, was like the biggest news network, but it said it was against the mainstream media. Like, who is more mainstream than you right now? Unfortunately, being batshit crazy doesn't stop you from being mainstream. Well, I want to go back to something you said about the morality of convincing Trump voters to stay home. So let me ask you this. Where does morality start and stop when you are facing something you deem to be an amoral force in the context of a campaign, which will happen in 10 months and again in three years, whatever it is, is it immoral to say, I am going to devise a tactic that will convince Trump voters that they should stay home if you believe that he is the head of an authoritarian movement? I've got some pushback from this in the past. I think everyone should have the right to vote. It shouldn't be made more difficult for people to vote. And tactics that impose barriers to voting are immoral and are not okay. And if they're not illegal, they should be. I take a slightly different view about convincing people not to vote. Because not voting is a perfectly legitimate expression of democratic will too. And I don't necessarily think that saying to people, you're not going to vote for my guy, but you shouldn't vote for your guy either because your guy is terrible. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. I said this on Twitter a few months ago. I got a fair bit of pushback from it. And look, you know, in all political campaigns, you want to mobilize your voters and you want to make your other voters feel like, the voters on the other side, feel like they have less reasons to vote for their guy. Yeah, and in a two-party system where they're never going to vote for your guy, what does that mean? I mean, some of them are not going to vote. I don't have a problem with campaigns that tell people that. I don't have a problem fundamentally, for example, with the Trump campaign telling Bernie Sanders supporters, oh, you don't want to vote for that Hillary, she hates Bernie. That's a legitimate campaign tactic. In my book, a lot of people disagree with that. And I understand that. But, you know, if you're not in a place with mandatory voting, I think that choosing of your own volition not to vote is a perfectly legitimate and appropriate expression of democratic will. And it's not the same as moving someone's polling station so they can't get to it. It's not the same as not giving them time of work or whatever. So, for example, if you take the U.S. Senate race in Ohio, as we wrap up here, and you've got a guy like Josh Mandel, who has gone full MAGA, full big lie. Then you have someone like a J.D. Vance. You know, anti-Trump at 16 is now trying to be super Trumpy, white nationalist, transgressive, but hasn't gone all in on the big lie yet because he's smart enough to know, like, I've got to have some maneuver room post-primary. And then you've got someone like Jane Timken, the former state party chair. You know, we will do what we can, and we've already started this, to engender their internecine fighting because it will drive numbers down. We have a pretty good sense that like if Mitch McConnell has his way, it will be a very, very close race. And then he'll come in with his money, you know, for Jane Timken, because he sees her as probably the most electable person in the fall, which he might be right about. Like we want to make sure that she's unavailable, right? That she is so damaged with MAGA voters that should she be the nominee that they'll stay home. Like I see that as a perfectly legitimate tactic. Because not only, as you said, campaigns do it all the time, but in the context of that Senate race, 
I want to make sure that whoever gets through against a guy like Tim Ryan, who's good for that race and should have a good shot at winning, has the most damaged opponent he possibly can by the time the, the general election starts. Well, listen, Aria, before we let you go, tell everybody where we can find you on social media and tell us a little bit more about Hat Tip. Okay, so I write the Hat Tip. It's Aria, that's A-R-I-E-H dot substack dot com. And I write every couple of weeks about different topics. I try and cover a mix of political stuff in the US, the UK, Israel, and generally try and take a look at some of what's going on in the world right now, trends, predictions, try and keep it lighthearted, interesting, and I'd love for you guys to join. And where can we find you on social media? So I'm over on Twitter, Aria Kovler, that's A-R-I-E-H-K-O-V-L-E-R, and that's mostly where I live. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Aria, I want to thank you for joining me today. And everybody, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, Follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.